0: Hey, everyone, and welcome into Coffee and Co. Sleeping. I'm Amanda.
1: And I'm Adriana. And we're really excited about today's episode. We're going to be talking all about infant sleep. And we're going to be hopefully busting some really common infant sleep myths with our guest, Kayla Solomon of Official Sleeping Beauties on Instagram. She is a certified sleep and parent coach. So welcome, Kayla.
2: Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for
0: joining us. I know we were talking a bit before we hit record. I've known you, I guess, virtually for quite a while. We connected a long time ago on Instagram. So I, of course, know, you know, so much about you and your business and the work that you do. But if we could just kind of dive in and talk a little bit about what it is that you do for our followers who do not know.
2: Absolutely. So I am, first of all, a mom of three. And I think that's always important to say, because I've been in the shoes of parents who are having sleepless nights. So my kids are eight, almost six and almost three and a half. And I'm also a certified sleep specialist and a certified parent educator. So I did my sleep certification through Isla Grace. It's a very intensive certification based not just on the sleep piece itself, but also on understanding how responsive parenting fits into the conversation about a responsive approach to sleep. And then I was so intrigued by everything that I learned there that I decided to also do a parent certification through Attachment Parenting International. So I have that certification and my educational background is actually in psychology. So the three pieces kind of fit together very nicely to give parents a very well-rounded look at what we do when we're looking at a child's disposition, what it works, you know, how things work in their family dynamic, um, because sleep is just one piece of the puzzle. And that's why parents initially come to me. But in so many instances, there's so many other pieces at play as well. I had
1: really unrealistic expectations uh, surrounding infant sleep, what was normal and what that was supposed to look like. Aiden is my first child, so I really knew not very much and I was actually gifted a sleep training course uh, from a very course. popular, yeah, from a very popular like, "Taking Care of Babies," the one that like right. everyone knows about. Yeah, and I watched it pre giving birth to my son. And it was just very one size fits all. It was kind of like all babies are like this and this is what you do and it'll be great. So I really didn't know that not all babies are like this and it's not this simple and it's not this easy. um, And that there are so many other components that go into specifically getting to know your baby and what works between you and your baby. And like you just said, the dynamics and all the things that come into play, not just with sleep, but in general. So can you just talk a little bit about what actually is normal? What does infant sleep actually look like?
2: Absolutely. So I'll say first of all that I don't think your experience was unique in, you know, first being handed the sleep training handbook basically, and I'm always very upfront with my clients. I went down that road personally as well with my own children because it sounds crazy to say, but my oldest is 8. 8 years ago social media didn't exist in the way it does today, and so there wasn't the same access to information on what normal infant sleep looks like, and so you either had the choice between being a quote-unquote good parent teaching your child quote-unquote good habits and sleep training, or not. And the not was very undesirable to people. And so I've been down that road of sleep training. And I see not just how it doesn't play into what normal infant sleep looks like, but also how detrimental it can be to a parent's mental health if it's not the right approach for your family. So I think understanding normal infant sleep, part of it is knowing that sleep training doesn't fit into that narrative very nicely. And we could probably do a whole episode in and of itself on why sleep training exists in the way that it does and why biologically normal infant sleep doesn't fit our you know social structure that well, in particular in the United States where parents are forced back to work very early. But in general, normal infant sleep is interrupted. It's normal for it to be interrupted. And so when we work on a responsive, more attachment focused approach to sleep, we kind of look for the pieces of the puzzle that are more abnormal. And so when I look at wakes at night, for example, you know, if I have, let's say a six month old breastfed baby in front of me, if a parent says to me, my child's waking, you know, four to five times a night as a six month old breastfed baby, I'm going to say, congratulations, you have a normal infant. That doesn't mean you have to live with tons of interruptions. There are still things we can do to get creative to kind of maximize a child's sleep, but that's still within the range of normal. The other really big piece is understanding, you know, when does that all end, right? Like when are wakes no longer a thing? Most parents don't like my answer, but the truth is that wakes in general are pretty normal until about three years of age. And so what the range of normal looks like is going to be different for every family and every child based on their temperament and their sleep needs. But it's really only in toddlerhood that we start to look at wakes as being truly abnormal. Any variation in the frequency of wakes, in the timing of wakes, all of that is what I would expect to see from an infant absolutely in the first year of life, but even beyond that point.
0: My brain is trying to catch up because that was just so much information. I have so much to say (laughs) back because I'm sitting here with an almost four-year-old and I'm like, oh, we still wake at night. Yeah. But I love that we're talking about the expectations because like Adriana, you know, Kennedy's my first child. You know, people around me have kids, but nobody's really talking about sleep to somebody who doesn't have kids. Like my sister's not calling me like, oh my God, I was up all night. Like casually things would be mentioned. And I always just thought, okay, (laughs) kids wake a lot. You know, I need to get used to not getting any sleep sleep. And I had kind of like the opposite experience at the first six months. Yeah, my daughter, like I was waking her to feed. And then I was the doctor was like, you don't have to do that anymore. It was like seven, eight hours. And I'm like, Oh, my goodness, like, what was everybody talking about? Like, I'm getting more sleep now. Then I did like when I was working full time and having to be up to commute. And then at six months, sleep definitely kind of took a turn. And I was shocked because I thought this isn't normal. Something's something's wrong. This isn't what was happening. And of course, you know, the more research I did and if somebody could see my Google history back then, right, because that's (laughs) like you said, you know, eight years ago, social media and stuff and the Internet. I mean, the Internet was around, of course, but now we have all of this information at our fingertips. And for me, sometimes it's too much where do we turn? You know, what resources can we trust? What, you know, people on social media, like who is giving us the best information and everyone has courses. And it's like, how do I find what's right for me and my baby? So I'm really glad that we're talking about this because we've all been told at some point in our parenthood that sleep training is the answer. And there's so many parents out there who have chosen to do opposite. And sometimes that can feel really lonely.
2: I think also one of the things that you just touched on is this understanding of when broken sleep actually starts. And I think part of the reason that it's not talked about as much as it really should be is because those first few months, generally speaking, are easier, right? Like babies are still in that kind of like sleepy fourth trimester where basically all they do is like eat, sleep and poop. That's their whole MO. And so it really usually isn't until that four month mark. And it's, again, it's not an exact science. It's somewhere in the three to five month range where that four month sleep progression starts. Right. And so from a sleep trainer's perspective, that's usually where they grab parents and say, Oh, your baby was sleeping perfectly. And now this horrible thing has happened and nobody's sleeping. Now it's time for you to sleep train them. Personally, I feel like they grab onto parents' desperation and it's, It just feels a little bit yucky to me to do that. But really, and this is part of the reason why, you know, the certification that I took and the people in sort of my area talk about progressions instead of regressions is because part of the reason that that's actually happening is there's a structural change in a baby's sleep at the four month mark where their sleep cycles actually get shorter. And that's the reason that there's more wakes. And so that piece of it alone is normal. It's completely normal for sleep to get worse before it gets better. And I don't think parents are ever prepared for that.
0: I love that you mentioned progression versus regression, because that was something I really had to correct myself as my daughter got older, kind of learning that there is in
1: fact a difference. Yeah. I think too, as Amanda mentioned, you know, when I took that course, when I was flipping through the videos and listening, it sounded very one size fits all to me. But again, I knew very little. And so then when I had my son and I realized that nothing is as this woman said it would be, one thing I wanted to touch upon was temperament. You know, every baby is different and requires different things from their parents. So I think that's why for me, the one size fits all was off putting to begin with. It just in my gut didn't feel right. It was very apparent for me why something like this wouldn't work for him. And that's why I never tried. I never attempted it. It was something that I didn't need to try to realize wouldn't work for us. So could you talk a little bit to us about temperament in general and how that can affect sleep?
2: Absolutely. So I actually am in the midst of doing a series on Instagram and TikTok about 30 sleep tips in 30 days. And one of the tips that I shared this week is how understanding your baby's temperament can play into what their sleep needs look like. Everything that I say when I talk about tips like this, it's very much a generalization and we have to look at each individual baby. But generally speaking, the babies who are super chill, easygoing, those are kind of your unicorn babies. Those are the ones that tend to be higher sleep needs. And so that's where a lot of the you know sleep training success stories come from are the Babies who would have slept naturally on their own anyway, because that's just their temperament and their personality. The flip side of it are babies who are a little bit more highly sensitive. Those tend to be your FOMO babies who, like, you can never put down, they need to be the center of everything. They're very vocal about what their needs are. And they typically are the lower sleep needs babies. And so then you run into this issue where parents are told, like, here's your one size fits all sleep chart that you can find on any Google search. If your baby doesn't fit into that two or three hour window of the amount of sleep they should be getting, you're doing Something wrong as a parent. The challenge with those charts is first of all, they're not rooted in science. And second of all, they're based on the median. So if you take a hundred babies and you average out their sleep needs, the chart is based on the average baby in the middle. It's not based on the kids who are higher or lower sleep needs. And so there's such a wide variation of what would be considered normal in terms of sleep needs. And then you add on top of it that their temperament in and of itself drives the way in which they need to fall asleep. And you don't have the ability to fit into these one size fits all programs anymore. And then it's positioned to parents as if they are the cause that their baby isn't sleeping. They've done something wrong when more often than not, that's not actually true. That just
0: rings so true here because like my husband, for example, as an adult could sleep Four hours and be like ready to go. Let's go on a trip. And me, if I don't get like eight or nine hours, I'm miserable. I've gotten better, obviously, because I get less sleep as a mom. But my daughter's the same way. She's very low sleep needs. And when she was a baby in that six, seven month mark, it felt like I could never see the light at the end of the tunnel of getting more sleep. And for our parents who are listening, who are, you know, kind of in the thick of it, I hate to say it gets better, but it does. But I just want to offer kind of a different perspective. I started looking at the positive of the low sleep, which sounds crazy. But my daughter's super flexible. She was in a wedding. We were all in the wedding when my daughter was very, very young. So it was like early morning, missing nap, up late. And she was just happy to be there. She was great like her mood didn't change her temperament because she was fine going off with no sleep same holds true for like our Disney vacation we can skip naps we can be a bit more flexible and I was just thinking about it because I'm like in that six seven month I was like I need sleep I need you to be you know napping for two hours in the middle of the day and you know all of these charts and stuff that you see on Google why isn't she following that and then as she got older it was like I'm making you know lemonade out of lemons like this is what it is like this is our situation so I'm going to try to see the best in it when you're in the thick of
2: it, I could have never seen it, but things always kind of work out how they're supposed to. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think that's also one of the, I mean, there's many downsides to sleep training, but one of the very obvious ones is that you're a slave to your child's schedule. And so you don't have the ability to be flexible. And I think for a lot of parents, that's where a lot of the stress and anxiety comes from in that first year is like, if I don't get this right, it's my fault that my child isn't sleeping. Mm-hmm. And I always say to parents, sleep is a biological function. You can't control somebody else's biological functions. If I said to you right now, you have to fall asleep. You can't do it. It's not something that you have control over. And so it's not our job to control our child's sleep. It's our job to figure out what conditions they need to be able to sleep as best as they possibly can, and then make those conditions happen. And know that if we get it right, you know, 60 to 70% of the time, we're doing really well. Perfection should not be the goal when it comes to sleep, really anything in parenting, but For sure, with sleep, because you don't have control over making sure that your child performs in a certain way. I love that you just said that,
1: that, you know, as a parent, it's our job to support our children however they might need when it comes to sleep. I think if that was positioned to new or first time or not even first time parents, I think if that was positioned to us from the outset, then we'd have. A very different sort of experience in those early days with our infants and it wouldn't take six months for us to learn about some of these things actually being myths so another myth that i wanted you to talk a little bit about with us is you said you had some experience with sleep training in the early days of parenthood why is sleep training never a long-term solution and by that i think we more so mean Is it a one-time thing that lasts, you know, two days, three days, you sleep train your baby and you're gold and all of a sudden they're sleeping their 10 to 12 hours a night without a problem for the rest of
2: their lives. Can you sort of debunk that one for us? Yes, 100%. That myth absolutely drives me crazy because again, not just as a sleep specialist, but as a parent, I've seen that that's not true. So I can speak to my own child for sure. First of all, for her, it didn't work. She's the wrong temperament to be able to be left alone for long periods of time without any kind of comfort or confidence that we would be coming back. Temperament is a huge piece of it. But for any baby, whether you have an easygoing baby or not, there's always going to be periods of interruption. So you're going to go through different sleep progressions all throughout their first two years of life. You're going to go through time changes, just you know, with the change of seasons. You might be traveling. They might Tea, they might get sick. And every single one of those things are going to be sleep interrupters. And if you expect that your child is going to be sleep trained once, and then everything is going to be perfect, you're going to be really surprised when one of those things comes up and all of a sudden they stop sleeping and you don't know what to do about it because you've always been told not to comfort them when they sleep. You're back to the beginning and you have to sleep train them all over again. And most parents who sleep train, if you ask them how the process went, their answer is almost always, it was really awful, but it worked. If something feels really awful to you and you have to repeat that process with your child, it's probably not the right approach. It might work for a short period of time, but if you have to continue to go through it, it just doesn't work. And I always kind of draw this parallel between sleep training culture and diet culture, because it's very similar in that we know that if you want to, let's say, lead a healthy lifestyle, you want to, even if you wanted to lose weight, for example, the way to lose weight is not a crash diet. The way to lose weight is to make lifestyle changes that are, you know, sustainable long term and continue to lead a healthy lifestyle. And that's what sleep training presents to you is this crash diet where you do this really difficult thing for a short period of time and it's supposed to last forever, but it doesn't. And it's, I think with anything with parenting and sleep, you have to kind of extrapolate it from dealing with just your baby and think about it in the context of like an adult relationship. Would you ever do those things to another adult or would you ever do those things to yourself? And if the answer is no, it doesn't, you know, either wouldn't work for you or wouldn't feel right to you, then we shouldn't be doing it to our kids. And I think sleep training is a really good example of that.
0: I love that comparison because I think so many people often forget that our children are also human. Like they yes. are not robots to be controlled, that we can set a little program. Just like we're learning and growing and changing, they are too. I've never thought of it in the form of diet culture as well. And it, it's a perfect parallel because it's true. Sometimes the things that we do or even say to our children, if another adult did that to me, I'd be mortified. I'd, you know, I would set a firm boundary. So one of the sleep myths that I heard all the time, I still hear it now that my daughter's almost four. Sometimes I notice, it to hold true. Sometimes I didn't. But does daytime sleep lead to a more restful, better night's sleep? Or is that a myth?
2: So it's interesting because it's a little bit of both. So this concept of like sleep begets sleep, I think in a lot of instances is a myth, you know, especially if you have a lower sleep needs child, if they sleep too much during the day, you're actually going to get more interrupted sleep at night. If we're looking That's what at, happened
0: to us often. Exactly.
2: So if you're looking at like very common sleep problems that parents deal with, so things like a split night, for example, where your child's up for an extended period of time in the middle of the night, or difficulty at bedtime with either difficulty actually going to sleep or with false starts, and with early morning rises, all three of those, are caused by issues with daytime sleep, and that can be too much, or too little daytime sleep. So this idea of the more they sleep during the day, the better they're gonna sleep at night is not true. And honestly, I think the reason that that's perpetuated so much in the sleep training industry is because it's easier for a parent if a child is sleeping. When your child is sleeping, you don't have to do anything with them, right? And so it takes the load off you as a parent. And so if we're going to sleep train our children at night and basically ignore whether they're awake or not and leave them in their sleep space for 12 hours at a time, we don't actually care how much they sleep during the day because if they sleep too much, it's their own problem to figure out at night. And so longer naps are actually really helpful for us. But the reality is that the daytime sleep is there to support the nighttime sleep. And in some instances, it means your child needs to get more daytime sleep so that they're not going to bed overtired so they can have more consolidated sleep at night. And in other situations, it means that if they get too much sleep during the day, you're going to have more interruptions at night. So this is where this cookie cutter approach to sleep chart, sleep training really is not meant for the masses because it's so specific to each individual child's sleep needs, which is why, you know, as a sleep. Specialist myself, my preference is to work one on one with people as opposed to, you know, have these mass produced courses because there's such intricate differences between one child to the next that you can't say, here's what you should do at six months of age. Because if you have a high sleep needs child at six months or a low sleep needs child at six months, they're going to be sleeping entirely differently. Daytime sleep is going to look different for each one of those children.
1: Another really big myth that we have heard and we see on social media all the time especially from sleep trainers and sleep training accounts is that sleep is a skill can you talk Ugh. a little bit about that but yes. also sleep hygiene and what sleep hygiene means because those are two different things and I yes. know when I had sleep hygiene I had no idea what that meant <laughs> yeah so can you talk a little bit about the differences and also just the myth in itself in general
2: Absolutely. So I would say when we talk about sleep hygiene, I actually find the term sleep hygiene like slightly cringy only because it feels very rules-based to me. And I find that a lot of the rules around sleep come from sleep trainers. Generally speaking, what we're talking about with sleep hygiene is really just coming up with something that signals to your child that sleep is coming. And again, I always extrapolate it to an example that parents can understand in their own situation, right? So think about the things that you need in order to get ready for bed at night. You're not gonna just say, okay, it's bedtime and hop into bed without doing your, your routine. And that might be your skincare routine, It might be taking a shower, it might be listening to a meditation, it might be, you know, making sure your bed sheets are cold, whatever that is, that's part of your routine to get yourself ready for sleep. And so it's exactly the same thing for babies. That concept of sleep hygiene is really just about making sure that all those conditions are set, that you know, your child needs to fall asleep at night. And part of that could be support, right? If part of your child's sleep association is that they need you to be present for them to fall asleep, it's not a bad habit, you know, and that's another really common method. Again, we could probably do a whole episode just on that, but this idea of needing support to sleep is not negative. Again, anything that goes on at night, look at it during the day. Would we ever expect a child to be alone for 12 hours during the day and be able to handle it? never in a million years would that be something that would be reasonable to expect. So the same goes for nighttime sleep. Sleep is the biggest period of separation that our children experience from us, and they need to feel confident that we're there for them. And so that's where a lot of those you know supportive sleep associations come from, holding, rocking, nursing, shushing, whatever those might be. Those are not bad things. That's just part of their sleep associations, their ability to fall asleep at night. And I guess we could kind of keep that under the umbrella of sleep hygiene. Sleep as a skill kind of goes back to the conversation of, Can you teach a biological need? And generally speaking, the answer is no. Could we talk about different ways to breathe efficiently? Yes, but breathing itself is a biological function that we have no control over. And sleep is exactly the same. Sleep is something that we can't control. It's something we can manipulate in certain situations, but it's not a skill that can be taught to a child because it's a bodily function. All of these sleep trainers, and this is something that it's actually, I don't know how current you want to get in our conversation, but this is something that's going on right now is there's one particular sleep trainer with a very, very large following who is live streaming her sleep training of somebody else's child. And the way that she's presenting it is I'm teaching this child this absolutely valuable skill that if I don't teach them, they're never going to have. As much as the first year or two years or three years of life can be very frustrating when there's lots of wakes, ultimately, even if you were to do absolutely nothing, your child will eventually sleep because it's something that they can do on their own. It's not something that can be forced. This concept of you as a parent must teach your child this incredibly valuable skill of being able to put themselves to sleep is total nonsense. It's just, again, I think it's a bit of a marketing technique to scare parents into thinking they have to buy into a system where they have to teach their child something that they're going to learn on their own anyway.
0: I'm glad I just had my microphone muted because I just audibly gasped when you told me that. Oh, Um, yeah. I mean, I hope they got permission to have somebody's child on that large of a social media platform because that in itself is like so violating to me but and I love that you said that eventually our children are going to sleep on their own and again I know it's so hard to see that in the moment I know at some point it's going to happen but I need sleep now so I know a lot of parents who are listening are definitely in the thick of motherhood and the sleepless nights have young children so how can you know listening to this saying like yeah I don't want to do this sleep training doesn't feel right for me so how can parents get more sleep without resorting to sleep training you mentioned it earlier and I want to plug it again. If you are not following Kayla on Instagram, we're going to have her link in our bio because I definitely want you guys to check out the 30 days, 30 sleep tips because I've even with an older child, I've been finding those so helpful.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's kind of where I exist, right? Is this middle ground between cry it out and wait it out. And I don't think you have to pick one side versus the other. I think you can kind of pick and choose what's going to work for your family. When I work with families, part of what I look at is a child's age, right? So sleep training, like we said, is a very one size fits all approach. You do the same thing with a four-month-old as you would with a four-year-old. To me, that makes no sense. When I'm working with babies, I would say under the age of about nine months, and I'll tell you in a second why I differentiate nine months as kind of the marker for where we do different things, but under the age of nine months, there is absolutely no boundary setting whatsoever, right? We're just trying to get creative to find ways to support a child's needs and to support their sleep while also taking into consideration what a parent's needs are. Sometimes that's where the daytime sleep can be really helpful to get better sleep at night, and we introduce things like a dream feed, for example, where that is a parent led change that we're making to the way that a child eats at night. But we do it so that we can get the parent a slightly longer stretch of their own sleep while recognizing that night feeds in general are something that are normal and that are likely going to need to continue. So it's really just about getting very creative, thinking outside the box and looking at all the different factors that we can manipulate in terms of the sleep itself. But the other really critical piece of it is that sleep is more than just going to bed and falling asleep. There are so many, I'll use the term health issues in quotations, because that's really the only term there is to use, but I don't mean necessarily medical issues, but there are underlying things that can basically present themselves through sleep. And that's why parents end up calling me is, oh my God, my child doesn't sleep. But there's all these other factors that could potentially be going on that we have to consider before we can start making changes to sleep. And that's where I start from with babies of all ages, with toddlers as well, is let's do our homework and make sure there isn't anything else that we need to delve into a little bit deeper to ensure that those things aren't going on before we try and manipulate the sleep. And so we start with this kind of like holistic approach where we look at family history, the child's birth experience, the child's own health history, and the family dynamic in general to make sure that we're controlling everything that is within our control and diving deeper into the things that maybe aren't within our control before we try and change the sleep itself. The nine month mark is where we can start sort of talking about some level of boundary setting only because before that point, a child doesn't understand that when you leave the room, you still exist. And so to me, it makes absolutely no sense to do anything where you are using separation at all to get a child to sleep. Even after that nine month mark, there's no separation that we need to use to get better sleep. It's not about the separation. It's about showing your child that if they need you, they can rely on you and you'll be there for them. And so at that nine month mark is where we can start making more parent led changes. And generally speaking with babies in the like nine month to let's say 18 month range, Give or take is when we're talking about making changes to, let's say, feeding at night, for example, where a parent might say, I feel like most of the feeds at night at this rate are more comfort driven and not nutritive at this point. And so I want to start making changes to that. And that's where you get a little bit of the boundary setting because if your child wakes and you truly believe that they're not hungry, you can support them back to sleep in other ways. Again, no separation whatsoever. But we start making those parent led decisions to make changes to sleep in a supportive, attachment focused way. But ultimately, you don't need separation to start making those changes, and you also don't at the same time have to say, I have to throw my hands in the hair or just wait for things to change on their own. We can get creative to find solutions that feel comfortable to you as a parent that can kind of move the needle in a more positive direction.
1: I know that Amanda and I did an episode on co-sleeping and why we've chosen to co-sleep and how it personally benefited us As moms, but also our relationships with our children. And I think a big part of why we do our podcast and have a platform is co-sleeping might not be for everyone, but people should know that it is an option. And it's an option that if you're looking for more sleep, if you know it feels right for you, it's not something that you need to feel shame or guilt around. I think a lot of that exists when we talk about co-sleeping. There's that immediate kind of fear-mongering. And we're just here to sort of talk through the fact that. That shouldn't exist. Even culturally, you know, I'm from Bosnian. I'm from Sarajevo. I'm here now. I've been here almost the last six months with my son. And sleep training is not a thing. It doesn't exist. It's just, it's the norm. You sleep with your child if you do breastfeed, especially. And just like sleep training is, I think, the majority of the norm in the U.S. Here, co-sleeping is. And so that changes the conversation completely. But can you talk about what your professional opinion is on what some of the benefits of co-sleeping are?
2: Yeah, so I 100% agree with you that the idea of co-sleeping being this kind of like, you know, under the rug thing that we sweep away in the US and even in Canada as well, part of it comes down to, again, going back to the conversation about sleep training and you can't really co-sleep and sleep train at the same time. And so if the goal is this, gold standard of independent sleep, co-sleeping doesn't support that. The truth of the matter is though that the vast majority of the world lives in this dynamic where they understand that co-sleeping is beneficial, not just to babies, but also to parents, right? And for me, at the end of the day, whatever decision you make about your child's sleep, it's always about the path of least resistance to get the most sleep. And if co-sleeping does that for you and your family, you should 100% look at ways to make that work for you. If co-sleeping doesn't get you more sleep because you're nervous about it or you don't sleep comfortably or whatever, then that's not the path of least resistance for you. But when we look at the benefits of co-sleeping, first of all, I would say the AAP and the Canadian Pediatric Society both recognize that co-sleeping, and when we're talking co-sleeping, it's kind of an overarching term that encompasses any arrangement where a baby and their primary caregiver are sleeping in close proximity to one another. It doesn't always have to be bed sharing if bed sharing doesn't feel like the right approach for you. It could be room sharing, it could be using a sidecar crib, it could be a bedside bassinet, or it could be bed sharing. But both the AAP and the Canadian Pediatric Society recognize that there are benefits from the perspective of SIDS to using room sharing in particular as a means of ensuring that there's a lowered SIDS rate in the first year of life. So part of the reason for that is that if a baby is in close proximity to their parent and they have an episode of apnea where they stop breathing, if the parent is close by, they're more likely to recognize that and be able to intervene. So just from like the medical side itself, co-sleeping is very beneficial for that reason alone. Generally speaking, if we take the conversation of like, you know, the fear mongering of bed sharing out of the picture, we look at sleep through the lens of attachment babies in the first year of life attach through proximity to their primary caregiver. And so if they can basically see, hear, touch, or smell you, they are, they're going to feel safer. And the safer they feel, the more comfortable they are to sleep. And that's when you tend to get slightly longer stretches of sleep. And so co-sleeping offers that proximity, whether you're room sharing or sidecar sleeping or bed sharing, you're going to get that proximity because your baby is in the same room as you. The other huge benefit with co-sleeping is it supports the breastfeeding relationship. And this is again, where I have very big problems with sleep training in general, because I think it really really, really undermines the breastfeeding relationship because you're forcing a certain level of separation and independence on a child when they're not biologically ready for it. And at the end of the day, if co-sleeping is what's going to get you the most sleep, that's the only thing that matters. And it kind of goes back to the conversation of, is sleep a skill that you have to teach? And because we know the answer to that is no, you don't have to set certain parameters that your child has to follow so that you set them up for success later in life to sleep. They're going to sleep later in life. They're going to be fine. If co-sleeping today works to make sure that you're getting the sleep you need and that you're not spending time, you know, shuffling back and forth between two different rooms because you feel obligated to have your child in their own sleep space, then you should do that. It's always about the path of least resistance to get the most sleep.
0: And I know for me personally, it definitely became a means of survival because we were up so often throughout the night and people you know, often like to shame and really instill fear when it comes to those of us that are co-sleeping. But I can guarantee you having, you know, my infant daughter sleep safely on my floor bed was a heck of a lot safer than me falling asleep in the rocking chair holding her. Because when you wake up and and you're like,
2: oh my God, how long have I been here? Yeah, that's not safe. So that reminds me a lot of my experience when we sleep trained our first was co-sleeping was presented as this absolutely terrible, dangerous thing that if you did, you were going to kill your baby. And so we got into a habit where we would fall asleep in the rocker with her so much so that every morning when she would wake up, it was usually like 5am, my husband and I would trade off who would go in and sleep with her in the rocker for the rest of the night. And we used to lie to our sleep trainer about it, not because we believed it was more dangerous than bed sharing, but because we believed she was going to get mad at us for supporting her to sleep. But that's part of the challenge with sleep training is that ultimately parents are going to do what gets them the most sleep. Nobody's going to start their day routinely at 5am just because their baby's getting up and their sleep trainer tells them that they have to start the day when the baby wakes up. They're going to do what makes sense for them to get the most sleep. And so I think in a lot of instances, it's this abstinence only model that puts parents in a position where they're making more dangerous choices than they should be, where we really should be presenting parents with what's safer to do when it comes to bed sharing or co-sleeping.
0: And I think not only are so many people, you know, if they're working with like a sleep trainer or a sleep consultant lying in that aspect, but I've also heard of so many parents lying to the pediatrician, their sleep setup or how much their baby is sleeping at night therefore we're kind of led to believe that not many families are bed sharing or co-sleeping because we're all lying about it at some point we're all pulling baby you know in bed to get a little bit more rest and i know for us like you said you know all it takes is one or two times of finding yourself in an unsafe position it was my husband who was like why are you torturing yourself he's very much like let's take the path of least resistance throw that mattress on the floor and you know we set our space up and for us that looked like the mattress on the floor we made sure all the dressers were anchored to the wall. We didn't have any bulky comforters, no pillows, no stuffed animals. We made sure the dogs stayed out of the room. Just these little things that most of the time families are already doing. Tweaking little things in your space, even if you don't plan to co-sleep, even if you're like, no, my baby's going to sleep in
2: their crib 12 hours a night. If you're set up and it happens, you don't have to worry about it. I totally agree with you. And I think the other thing that comes up really commonly is this notion of crib sleep being the gold standard. And the truth of the matter is, more so in the last year or so, I'm recommending to many, many clients that they don't even bother with the crib because it creates such a barrier for a child to feel safe falling asleep that even if you don't want to bed share, putting a child on a floor bed at whatever age, whether it's an infant, a toddler, or an older child, they can handle sleeping on a floor bed and it allows you to support them to sleep in a completely different way than you would if you have crib rails between the two of you. Or even if you don't want to hold to sleep anymore and you want to shift your sleep associations, floor beds allow you to do that. So the crib as the gold standard, I think is a more outdated way of thinking. It certainly is not what happens outside of the Western world. And I think we need to look more at the things that we learn from other cultures that work really well. We should be doing a better job at Point when it comes to our parenting.
1: Kayla, we just talked about supporting our children to sleep. Another myth that I really want to bust, especially because it's been my experience, we hear so much about nursing to sleep being this horrible, horrible habit and a crutch and just this debilitating thing that we do to ourselves and our children. I'm here as living proof to say that that has not been my experience. I've nursed to sleep out of pure ease. <laughs> it makes me sleepy, it makes him fall asleep. We've done it since birth. He's about to be two next month. And we're doing it less and less now. Amanda and I just talked about this in a previous episode he's requesting stories now. We've sort of shifted over to that. We're at a 50-50 now where I'm 50% of the time putting him to sleep by breastfeeding and the rest of the time we're telling stories and cuddling. And that's really just been him on his own volition graduating to that. Can you talk a little bit about how this myth that if you do that, you'll never stop doing it is (laughs) actually a myth and that it is harmful in some way to us and our children?
2: I'm exactly like you are with my youngest. I nursed him till he was a little bit over two and I did it because it worked. And that's the thing with sleep associations is you do it while it's working until it no longer works either for you or for your child. And that's where you make a switch. And that's what my position is on nursing to sleep is like, if it works for you then do it, right? There's no reason to stop doing it. It doesn't mean that if you nurse to sleep, your child's going to need it forever. It doesn't even mean that while they're nursing to sleep that they're not gonna be able to have anything else. And I think any child who is in any kind of daycare program or they're with grandparents during the day, those children are living proof that nursing to sleep is not something that's going to stop a child from falling asleep in another way because a parent might nurse to sleep at home and then send their child to daycare and the daycare providers have an entirely different way of getting them to sleep. Nursing to sleep works for biological reasons. There are hormones in a mother's milk that are built in to make both a baby and a mother tired. And so I think that if you're comfortable nursing to sleep, there's no reason not to do it unless it stops working for you or for your baby. I think one of the biggest reasons that parents are told nursing to sleep is a bad habit comes from this myth of it being detrimental to a child's dental health. Part of that conversation is understanding that there are numerous studies that talk about what breast milk specifically does for dental health. And there is very little evidence that the breast milk in and of itself creates any dental issues. So the challenge with breastfeeding to sleep or bottle feeding to sleep more specifically is that if there are other foods in the mouth, for example, so if your child is eating both solids and breast milk and their teeth haven't been brushed properly and there are sugars from other foods still in their teeth, that's when nursing or bottle feeding can become more challenging in terms of the dental health side of things because of the other foods involved. But when they looked at and I I can't remember the exact study off the top of my head, but I can send it to you guys if you want to put it in the show notes. There was one study in particular that looked at taking teeth and soaking them in both breast milk and water and looking at whether or not there was more decay in the breast milk versus the water. And the results were exactly the same because breast milk on its own does not create any kind of tooth decay. If that is the rationale behind not nursing, nursing to sleep, it's not even true. And again, I think it goes back to this idea of forcing our kids into a high level of independence. If they have this reliance on us to feed them to sleep, they're not going to achieve this gold standard of independent sleep. But my argument is that that gold standard shouldn't exist and isn't a reasonable gold standard for most children.
0: And who even made up this gold standard? Society somewhere along the way just said, hey, this is what's best. And when people always say like, well, what are you going to do in the future to get her to bed? I'm like, go to college with her? Like, obviously, she's not going to be 20 years old, you know, nursing to sleep. I'm glad you mentioned like the daycare and being away from mom because our nanny, we had a period at home where was not napping for us, but would fall asleep for her. So that's very common for a lot of people. So we ask all of our guests, what is your go to coffee order? So
2: you guys are going to probably hate me that I'm not a huge coffee drinker. Actually, it's not that it's not coffee. It's that I, I don't do very well with caffeine. So I would say my go to order tends to be a summertime order, because I really like iced coffees in the summer. So I'd say it's an iced Americano, but it's usually decaf.
1: Kayla, I get that from you. You have like firecracker energy. I feel like you don't need caffeine. (laughs) Thanks so, so much for joining us. I mean, these are myths that we hear so often. And Amanda and I were really chomping at the bit to have someone come on and talk about them. So grateful to have had you on today. Also somebody who's not afraid
0: to debunk these myths because I think a lot of times we kind of toe on what is right, you know, the right thing to say. And I really appreciate you putting this information out there for new parents. For our listeners who want to know more, Kayla, can you just tell our listeners where they can follow you, where they can find um, your webinars, your
2: series, everything that you have coming up? Absolutely. So my website is sleepingbeauties.ca and that's where you'll find all the information you need on either booking a free call with me to chat about your family situation or to look at the one-on-one services I offer. I also share tons and tons of free tips on Instagram and on TikTok. My handle is the same for both. It's at official sleeping beauties. Anytime you want to get a group of moms together, I love doing group support as well. So if you have a couple of friends who have questions about sleep if you want to book a session with a bunch of you together, try and bust some of these myths and get people to open up to the conversation of an alternative to sleep training. I also do that as well.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Kayla, so much for joining us. Like we said, this was a topic we really wanted to cover and we wanted you to be the one that covers it. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.
2: Thank you guys so much too.